listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for September 2013. Today's episode is titled, Discovering Your Child's Destiny. Today's workers were children in days past. As children, they were raised and trained by their parents. This is true even of orphans and adopted children. Everyone is raised and trained in some context, home of origin, foster home, adopted home, or orphanage. During the early years of a child's life, lifelong patterns are seeded into the child. Wise management will build organizations with people who are seeking clarity and alignment with their life purposes. To do this, management will consider the background of each worker, recognizing that early childhood years are very important in shaping a worker's ability to find and fulfill his or her life purpose. As a maxim, healthy workers come from healthy home environments. And now, Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, Discovering Your Child's Destiny. Tonight our topic is going to be discerning and promoting your child's destiny. And so, um, what I want to who, who here knows what postmodernism is? Anybody know what, several of you know what it is? Okay, good. Well, postmodernism by many is a characterization of the culture that we're in. It's... Um, Postmodernism means it's beyond modernism. Modernism came into existence about three or four hundred years ago when people began to say, you know, that the worldview that was prominent back then, which was largely based on Christianity, which was based on the assumption that God revealed truth, uh, the thinking was that was an inadequate worldview and that we, we needed a better worldview and since science was coming of age, people began to think, well, gee, we can, we can reason our way into the answers to life's questions. And others began to talk about how we could empirically experiment and discover answers through empiricism. So rationalism, empiricism became very prominent, and with that came the whole idea of modernism. Modernism is the thinking that we can answer all of life's questions by in tangible reality. We don't have to go beyond tangible reality to do that. Well, it took a couple of hundred years before finally people began to look at the answers modernism was giving and realize these aren't good answers. And one of the big questions that modernism could not answer was the answer of purpose. Why do we exist? Modernism offers no answers to that, or at least no satisfactory answers. So postmodernism came in and said, you know, modern you moderns don't really have the answers. And so now we're gonna we're gonna go we're gonna go beyond you to a different perspective or we're gonna look at life differently. And so the postmodern culture is now about us. And let me just give you some characteristics of this culture that are gonna play into your role as parenting. And in fact they play into your role in every area of life, and they probably infect you more than you would like to admit. So can you be open that maybe you're not as honest with yourself about how much postmodernism has impacted you? Are you willing to be open to that? Okay. Now some of you maybe are more pure than others in terms of your thinking about this, but most of us have been impacted significantly by it. So let me just give you some examples here. Postmodernism rejects the idea of a meta-narrative. You know what a meta-narrative is? Meta means great, narrative means story. So it's basically saying there is no great story. 
Now, if you adopt a biblical worldview, you know God has got a story going. And it's simple. History is his story. It's about Christ. Everything is about Christ. And I know you think, well, gee, I go to work every morning. What's I got to do with the meta narrative? Well, God has created the world that you live in. He's created the rules for whatever business you're in. It doesn't matter what it is. What's going on? Whether you're an engineer, you're a teacher, you're a philosopher, you're a homemaker, you're a financial advisor, you're construction, whatever you do, the rules for that business came from God. And see, that's the thing we got to get a hold of. It's hard for us to. We, we don't connect God with the workplace. It's like, you know, God doesn't belong there. God wouldn't dirty his hands with workplace issues. But the reality is he created the workplace. He made all the rules. So he is engaged with it. He created it for a reason, a purpose. And that purpose revolves around Christ. And that's what the meta narrative is all about. So that's one of the challenges we have is we don't, the postmodern worldview doesn't believe in a meta narrative. So let me challenge you this. Until you can see your destiny in the meta narrative, you won't be able to see your child's destiny in the meta narrative. Until you can see your work in the meta narrative, you won't be able to see your child's work in the meta narrative. Now that's that's kind of sobering, isn't it? Well, that's the way God's universe works. God's universe works on modeling. The way that we grow is we model ourselves after our parents, our natural parents and our spiritual parents. That's how we grow. So that's one way that uh, postmodernism manifests today is they reject the idea of a meta-narrative. Uh, coupled to that is another thing that they generally reject, and that is the whole idea of generational transfer and submission to authority and respect for tradition. Kind of those three ideas all revolve around the idea that in postmodernism, because there's no meta narrative, we don't worry about history, whether behind us, we don't worry about the future. We're, we're in it just for here and the now for what we get out of it, what we want to do. And so it's all very narcissistic, very self-centered, very self-focused. There's no sense of sacrifice. Now, those of you that have children, have you discovered you have to sacrifice? Yeah. You figure that out? Yes. You know, if you don't sacrifice, that child's probably not going to be taken care of very well. Mm-hmm. Okay, so sacrifice is a reality of life. And men, if you haven't figured that out for, for your marriage, you're in trouble. Because <coughs> part of what men have to do is die to self to truly serve their wives. That's called love. Now, I know what you thought. When you got married, you thought you got married out of love. You didn't, you didn't get married out of love. Nobody marries out of love. Love is sacrificial living. What happens when people get married is there's a neurotic, neurotic attraction. There's some neurosis in my wife and some neurosis in me that we're drawn together. And so we got married. And then the challenge began. Because, see, after you get married, you got to get up the next day. It was so funny. My wife and I, next January will be our 45, 45th wow. anniversary. By the way, we honeymooned in San Francisco. 
We, we got married uh, on the 25th of January, 1969, and we flew out that afternoon for San Francisco. First class. It was great. <laughs> so we stayed at the Fairmont. We had, a, we had a delightful time. But Carol said when we got through with the wedding, her first impulse was, okay, now I'm going to go home and you're going to go home. <laughs> we, we, you know, we, we had no real understanding of what marriage was about. We were just two young kids that got married. Now we had to grow up. And that's the challenge. And I had to learn to sacrifice my will and my ways to serve this woman that God had given me. So that's the challenge in marriage. So the postmodernism, they don't understand any of that stuff. It's all about pleasure, comfort, convenience. You know, it's, and it's usually very self-centered on both parts, which is one of the reasons the divorce rate is so high. Another aspect of postmodernism is there's no respect for directive parenting. You know what directive parenting is? It's when you basically say to your children, this is the way it's going to be. This is what you're going to do. You direct them. You know, today we have a, a culture where parents think children can be self-directed. I was watching a news program a few years ago. They did this news program. Um, this lady was bragging on her little daughter, who probably was five or six years old, because she was directing her own education. And I'm saying, what? Directing her own education? Yeah, she was defining what her curriculum would be. Defining She's five or six years old. Defining what curriculum she was going to study, how much she was going to study, what she was going to do. The mom thought she was just, just brilliant for being able to make these choices. I'm looking at this lady and saying, are you insane? She has no clue about the nature of man from a biblical perspective. She's adopted the postmodern philosophy that children are capable of doing whatever they want to do. So directive parenting is not in the agenda of the postmodern. Another thing that's, that's not in the agenda, agenda of the postmodern is the value of pain. Now, probably everybody here that's got children, whether you want to admit it or not, you're probably a helicopter parent. Okay. Now, now, how would I know that? Okay. Other than I've seen it a lot, and I know something about your generation, um, there's a reason why this happens. And that is, we have adopted a philosophy that's from postmodernism that life is about pleasant experiences. We, in America, we, we talk about the American dream. You know, what's, what's the American dream? Go make a bunch of money, go work hard, make a bunch of money as fast as you can so you can retire and go do what you want to do, when you want to do it, how you want to do it. Isn't that it? That's the American dream. Be your own boss. Do your own thing. Nobody bosses me around. Nobody tells me what to do. I do what I want to do. Well, see, that's, that's, the, that's in our culture in spades. And so for us to be able to rise above that and think differently is very difficult. So... What happens to us is we want to walk out the reality of this comfortable, pleasant, easy existence. So that means we don't want to suffer. We don't want any pain. So if pain is going to be in our life, it's going to disrupt us. One of the ways that pain gets in our lives 
is when our children hurt. Have you noticed that? Michelle, when your child hurts, do you hurt? Yes. It's painful, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And Dave, have you noticed that when Michelle hurts, you hurt? Yes. <laughs> so I want to be sure we're all clear. You know, it's the old saying, if mama's not happy, no one's happy. There's a lot of truth to that. And if that child is in pain, everybody's in pain. So what goes on today in many, many lives of parents and the minds of parents is we want to be sure that our child does not suffer because we don't want to suffer. If they suffer, we suffer, and we don't want that. So now what we do is we hover over them to be sure no one hurts my child. No one inflicts pain on my child. No one does anything to cause my child pain because I don't want pain. It's really very narcissistic on our part, very self-centered. We don't understand a biblical view of pain and what God is doing in and through pain. And finally, with postmodernism, and this is not an exhaustive list. I, this is just, I just a few things I thought of in a plane coming out here. If we had we brainstormed, I mean, who knows what we could come up with? But postmodernism does not believe in individual purpose. You have no specific individual purpose, and that is in our culture. That's in the people that show up at your church services on Sunday. That's how they think. And one of the ways you know that is just spend a little time talking to them about the SLA message, which is all about specific purpose. And pretty soon you're going to hear people say things like, oh, I don't think I have any specific purpose other than I'm supposed to go make a bunch of money and go give to the church. They think that's some noble reason to be working. They have no sense that God has a destiny and purpose for their life. So these are things that impede our ability today to parent. They're in the culture. They're in the Christian community. In fact, I would say that they're as badly in the Christian community as they are in the culture because the Christian community is largely a product of the culture. Okay, so having said that, my next point is this. Parenting is an act of obedient faith. Parenting is an act of obedient faith because parenting, for it to work, it cannot be influenced by an unbiblical culture. An unbiblical culture leads you into the will and ways of man. A biblical culture leads you into the will and ways of God. So the only way you move into the will and ways of God is you have to learn what it is to be obedient and walk it out in faith. So just a couple of texts here. Train up a child in the way he should go. When he is old, he will not depart from it. Isn't that a wonderful promise out of Proverbs 22, verse 6? That as you faithfully train your child, the seeds that you put in that child will germinate. And my daughters are your age. I think they're the oldest one's 41. The youngest will be 39 this summer. And every once in a while, there's a conversation that I get to overhear where one of them is saying something that's really profound. And I'll listen to that conversation and I'll think, did I ever teach them that? And I can't remember ever teaching them that. And I'm trying to figure out how did they learn that? Well, the only thing I can come up with is they heard it from me in some context where it wasn't necessarily specifically directed to them. It's like... They're on the stairwell over there listening to me talk to you right now, and they're hearing this. 
Although I wasn't really talking to them, I'm talking to you. But they heard it, and it went into them. And now, as they got older, it germinated and came out. Now, that's what this promise is all about, is you faithfully sow those seeds in your children by creating an environment in your home that's so biblically oriented that, that what goes in your children, whether you see the direct fruit of that now or even for the next 10 or 15 or 20 years, it doesn't matter. In the end, those seeds will germinate and bear fruit. So our responsibility is to faithfully sow the seed. This is obedient faith, trusting that God will take, that, take those seeds and bear fruit. Now, secondly, Hebrews 11.1, 1, this is what faith is. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance of what we do not see. Biblical parenting is an act of faith which implies calling something to an existence that is not. Now, I've got, a, a, I've got three grandsons. The youngest is now 11 months. This month, he'll be 11 months old. And I, I got to see him this past weekend, and he's just a delight. He's very social, very engaging. And my wife and I were at the dinner table. He's sitting in his high chair, and we're trying to get him to wave. Okay? <laughs> and finally, he kind of was doing something with his hand. He didn't know what he, what he was doing, but he kind of raised it a little bit. And it was just such a delight to see him do that. Well, we're calling something to, into existence that's not. He doesn't know how to wave. So we're trying to, in faith, we're trying to show him, model it for him. This is what you do. We have faith that you're going to do it. It's just a matter of time. And see, that's what parenting is. You do the right thing. You model the right thing in faith that they will imitate you in time. And that's a beautiful way of God's system. He's made it so children are connected to you. Whether they want to be or not, whether they like it or not, they are connected to you. And there's, when something happens to you, it happens to them as well at some level. It may not be as deep and as profound. It may not be as obvious, but it happens to them, which is why it's so important. If you want your child to grow, what do you do? You grow in Christ. You want your child to find their purpose? You find your purpose. You want your child to walk in the holiness and the awe of God? You do that. You want your child to be faithful in their marriage? You do that. You need to know every time sin comes into your life, you've introduced it into the life of your child. When you walk righteously, you're sowing seeds of righteousness in your child. Faith is confidence that what we hope for and assurance of what we do not see. See, this is walking by faith and knowing God's universe and how it works is critical for you to parent well. Now, what I want to do uh, is share with you a little bit about a Jewish model of fathering. In fact, I want to share with you five things that's expected of every Jewish father. Now, this comes from a rabbi. I'm reading a book right now that I'm absolutely fascinated with. It's written by a, a rabbi who also is in a marketplace. It's a business book. And he's presenting the Ten Commandments for Developing Wealth. Now, those of you that are in wealth management, which are you and you, um, you probably know that the Jewish people 
on, on the, 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 they have a higher percentage of wealthy people than the normal ethnic groups. You pick any other ethnic group and you look at the, the percentage of, of entrepreneurs, business people, wealthy people, the Jewish people are higher than anyone else. Now why is that? Well, this rabbi proceeds to explain why. Basically, he lays out the Ten Commandments for accumulating wealth. And when I first was looking at it, I was kind of skeptical about it. And then I got to reading it, and I realized this Jewish rabbi is offering an Old Testament biblical view of wealth, wealth accumulation. Immediately, you, you know there's going to be a lot of truth in it. And For example... Several years ago, I did a study on prosperity, and I discovered that virtually all the revelation we have on the scripture about prosperity is in the Old Testament. There's virtually nothing in the New Testament about it. It's all in the Old Testament. So there's a lot to be learned just by looking at the Old Testament. So I've been fascinated as I've gone through and read this book. In fact, the more I read it, the more I'm getting sucked into it because it's just this guy is brilliant. He is absolutely brilliant. Some of the things he sees are unbelievable. For example, do you know why the, in the creation account, why the, the days of creation are not named, but they're numbered? Well, he said the reason for it is because the number, each number is, it has a place in the succession of numbers leading up to the seventh day, which was the day of rest. That was the day of completion. So each day is connected to the next day. Whereas if you name them, it may look like they're independent. The numbers suggest they're dependent. I thought, wow, what insight. I mean, he's got incredible insight like that. Well, I mean, we could sit talk all evening about the, the insights. In fact, I've been talking to my wife about him the last week, and she's just mesmerized. She's reading the book now. Because it's so fascinating. But he gave, in his book, he offered from the Talmud, which is their, it's their Didache. You know what the Didache is? The first century, when Christianity is, is, is birthed, and the only scripture they have is the Old Testament. The New Testament was not formulated and accepted for about 200 years after Christ. Did you know that? So the first couple of hundred years, they didn't have the New Testament like we have. They had the Old Testament. Christianity is rooted in the Old Testament. So they came up with a discipleship manual called the Didache. And that's why they did a lot of their discipleship in the first 200 years of Christianity. Well, the Jewish people had their discipleship manual, the Talmud. And so they, it was their understanding of how to walk out and become a faithful Jew. So in this Jewish Talmud... There are five things that fathers do for children. In fact, it's a requirement. This is what is required of fathers to do. Number one, he must first induct them into the socio-religious group so they never feel culturally disconnected. Number one, community is the first thing. Isn't that interesting? It's not the individual, it's the community. Now secondly, he must then instruct them in what he expects from them. Third, he must assist them to marry. Then just leave it up to them. He's involved. 
Do you hear the, this directive? Amen. Induct, instruct, assist. I mean, very engaged. Number four, he must teach them an occupation by means of which they can become useful to humanity and therefore earn their living. And finally, he must teach them to swim. swim. <laughs> now, that, I find that humorous just like you did. Uh, and I, I haven't done enough study yet to find out what this is, but Carol and I were at dinner last night enjoying a Texas steak before I came out here because I knew I probably wouldn't get one out here, but, although they have good steaks here. But we were talking about this last night and we're trying to speculate, why would this be so important? And the one thing we came up with, well, you know, when they, when they were on their way from being delivered from Egypt into the Promised Land, they didn't have to worry about swimming. <laughs> so maybe once they got into the pattern of rejecting God, you know, God's provision by parting the waters went away, and now they had to worry about swimming. <laughs> so we, we talked a little bit about that kind of humorously. All right, what I want to do with our remaining time here is go back through these principles, and now let's bring Christ to bear into this. Mm -hmm. Because he gave you an Old Testament perspective. And I can tell you there are a number of things wrong with his view. Number one is his view of significance is all based on money. And we know significance biblically is not about money. If it's about money, Christ was not significant. Do you think Christ was significant? Well, he died broke. And he was the most significant person who ever lived. So money cannot be the measure of significance. So little things like that, that you know, because he's a Jew and doesn't see things through the lens of Christ, he's missing those points. So let's go back through these five points and let's put a biblical, a Christian biblical worldview. He gave us a Jewish biblical worldview. Let's put a Christian biblical worldview on this. First, it says he must induct them into this, their social religious group so that they will never feel culturally disconnected. Now let me just suggest a couple things there. The social religious group that, that we need to be thinking about would be what? The church. The true church. Now, do you think there might be a false church out there? A, a church that's really not representative of Christ? Yeah, I think there is. So don't, just because you drive by a building and it says church, doesn't mean it's church. In fact, Scripturally, there's no such thing as a building being called a church. Scripturally, a church is a body of believers. But even if you understand that definition properly, and you go to a gathering of people that call themselves a church, that doesn't make them a church. What makes them a church? What is the church? It's a body of genuine believers who truly know Jesus Christ, and they demonstrate that by how they live. Their lives demonstrate Christ. So you must induct your children into the community of believers, the true community of believers, so that they will never feel culturally disconnected. That means they need to be interdependent, multi-generational. They need to understand the meta-narrative and their role that they will play in the meta-narrative. So you see how bringing Christianity, bringing Christ to bear, takes a... a a principle that's pretty good and makes it really good. And that's what Christ does. He takes something that's pretty close to truth and he makes it really true. And a text you could look at if you're interested is 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 
The second principle then, he must then instruct them in what he expects from them. Now that's good. You, children need to know what's expected of them, don't they? Yep. And so a good text here to consider will be something like Ephesians 6.4. Ephesians 6.4 says this, Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. So, for example, that, that couple that was allowing their young child, young daughter who was five or six years old, to define their school curriculum, mm -hmm. was that training instruction yep. of the Lord? Yep. That's just humanism. Mm -hmm. Human beings thinking that children can come up with their own curriculum and educate, basically self-educate. Now, let me ask you this. How many of you believe that you're self-educated relative to Christ? Nobody wants to admit it? Well, I run into this all the time. Now, of course, I'm using that as a metaphor. Mm -hmm. But frequently, I run into people that are self-taught in Christianity. Did you know in the Jewish faith, the Jewish worldview, self-taught has no standing. It had no standing at all because they knew the intricacies of the Hebrew language were so rich that you had to be taught by someone who was very knowledgeable, who had been studying it, who himself had been taught. I'll give me an example of this. The Hebrews believed that the Hebrew language was the most significant language on the planet. And they believed that any idea that was not expressed in a Hebrew word was suspect. Every significant idea would have a Hebrew word. So, for example, in Hebrew, there's no word for face. There's only a word for faces, plural. There's no word for face. So the Hebrew conclusion is there's no, no one has one face. Now, we're talking metaphorically here. You have many faces. You see the significance here? They drew that out of the language. The study, the depth of which they went to to understand something about God's universe far exceeds what, what we normally think of and what even any of us could do in and of ourselves. We need to be taught. If you, uh, if you look at Titus chapter 1, where, they, where they're laying out the qualifications for elders, one of the qualifications you will see there is that an elder is a taught man. Not self-taught. He is a taught man. He's been taught the truth about Christ. So, fathers, you need to be teaching your children, instructing your children, guiding your children. They should not be self-taught. Now, there's nothing wrong with studying. You should study. There's nothing wrong with, with learning things on your own, but that's just one aspect of what you do. You fundamentally should be under godly men. One of the, the great blessings I've had in life is I've, I've had five fathers in my life. I had a natural father who taught me business. My first spiritual father, who is my father-in-law. 
taught me how to study the Bible and began to expose me to a basic understanding of the meta narrative. My second spiritual father, my third father, was a was one of the premier theologians of the 20th century. He began to teach me theology. He taught me biblical worldview. He taught me how to to teach, how to how to exegete scripture, how to ex, how to expound scripture. I mean, he he's the one of all my fathers. I would say he has been the most influential of all of them in terms of my spiritual growth. Then my fourth spiritual father was a man that was he was actually younger than I am. The only father I've had who's been younger, he taught me about the Holy Spirit. And my fifth spiritual father came along and taught me about the kingdom of God, taught me about holistic Christianity, taught me what the real gospel was. You see, each of those fathers did something that the others couldn't. God used all of them to layer into me whatever he's put into me so that I could do what he's called me to do. Now, you know, I didn't see that at the time it was happening. It was just happening. It was only as I'm looking back now, I see what the Holy Spirit was doing. He was training and instructing me. When I'd had no clue, I needed to be trained and instructed. I would have been very happy, you know, being self-taught, self-educated. I thought that was kind of a badge of honor on some level. It's not. When somebody communicates to me that they're self-taught, that is independence. That's rebellion. That will not go well. That is only partially effective. So it's very important, fathers, you listening fathers, that you instruct and train. Now, you do know that fathers is not a reference to male or female. You know that? It's a reference to a role. Okay. Mothers is not a reference to male or female. It's a reference to a role. And just to give you a flavor of this, mothers encourage, they comfort. Fathers call up and challenge. So the roles are different. It's, there are times that I can function like a mother, and there are times I function like a father. It just depends on the situation, what, what God is trying to do here, and how well I'm tuned in to what he's trying to do, and how well I'm functioning with him. And so it will be with you. So number two is he must instruct them in what he expects from them. And that is to, we've got to instruct our children to learn to live under authority. You know, there's a chapter on leadership in this book by this Jewish rabbi. And about a year ago, I taught a whole seminar, three-hour seminar on biblical worldview of leadership. And in preparing for that seminar, I was so disappointed with what I found in the literature. Even among the Christians, it was very weak, very poorly developed, biblically. It was largely capitulating to worldly thinking about leadership. This Jewish rabbi, in one chapter, gives some of the most profound understanding of a biblical view of leadership that I have seen. And one of the things that he pointed out was, no leader has any standing unless they are a follower. To be a leader, you must be a follower. And that's, again, built in to the Jewish understanding of the Old Testament. So what you want to do for your children is be a good follower and then lead them and guide them by your example into 
them following you just as you follow others. Furthermore, another corollary to this that he brings up in the chapter on leadership is that your children will know that when you direct them, that direction is not coming from you. It's coming from your authority, the one over you. You see how important that is? It isn't whimsical. It isn't just your idea. You live under authority, and therefore they need to live under authority, and we have a God who's made all the rules, and everybody's under his authority. It's rich, isn't it? It's really rich stuff. All right, number three. He must assist them to marry. My, my wife's father, who was my first spiritual father, told my wife-to-be when she was probably six years old, he said, I will find your husband. Now, how many of you have told your daughters that? Yeah, if you have, that's good. That's good. Most don't. Most it's kind of like, you know, leaving it up to the daughters or sons to figure it out. You know, you know, go bring them home, we'll inspect them, you know, we'll give you thumbs up, thumbs down, but they're not too engaged. Well, my father-in-law was very engaged, and, and he did he did direct my wife to marry me. And I didn't know that until after we were married. But, you know, there was a tremendous blessing there. And likewise, I've seen situations where, where ladies were directed by fathers not to marry someone, and they just went ahead and did it anyway. And what do you think happened then? It was a train wreck. It was not good. You see, God will give you insight into your children that the children will not see. And the only way they will listen to you is if they understand and are submitted to authority. Which means you have to be submitted to authority. So if you are in authority, then you're instructing and guiding them and directing them to be under authority. Then they will listen to you because they know when you tell them, you say, this concerns me, they know it's not you. It's your authority speaking through you to them to direct them. Do you hear that? That's so important. Because children just, you know, they're not going to respond well to whimsical opinions. They need to know that authority flows through you to them. That makes your words very important. And they'll think twice about disobeying. I've seen it over and over again. When, when people don't obey their parents, it does not go well, particularly in the area of marriage. 1 Peter 3, verses 1 through 7, which we don't have time to get into, but it's a great text to look at because... The context of 1 Peter 3 is suffering. 1 Peter chapter 2, the end of 1 Peter chapter 2, we have the example there of Christ suffering. And Christ is the one person who ever lived that never should have had to suffer. He was the one person who was sinless, did not deserve to die, voluntarily died, and likewise, he gave us an example. So I want to just read you a little bit out of this. Um, says this, But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, that is commendable before God. 
To this, you were called. Do you hear what he's saying? You are called to suffer for doing right. It's not your call to suffer. It's your call to suffer for doing right. It's no suffering if you, if you do something wrong and get, uh, get consequences for that. That's not suffering. Suffering is when you do something right and you get consequences. Consequences you shouldn't get. But that's, that's a call. It says this, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example, a pattern that you should follow in his steps. So this is the context here of the, at the end of 1 Peter 2 is the call that we all have on our lives to suffer for doing what's right. Then he launches into marriage. See a connection there? Is that crystallized for anybody? That when you get into a marriage relationship, there's going to be some pain. There's going to be some suffering. And there's instructions to wives. And then there's instructions to husbands. Now, I'm always merciful with women. So I'm going to beat on the men. Okay? Okay. There's, there's six verses dealing with the wives. One verse is dealing with, with the men. And I think the reason for that is the wives need more words. You know, my wife always needs more words. So he gives more words to the women. To the men, he gets directly to the point. He says, husbands, listen up. In the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. Some texts say, dwell with your wives according to knowledge. Then what would that mean? That means get to know your wife. Know how God made her to work. How God made her to function. And treat them with respect or honor as the weaker partner and heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Now, what, what this suggests, anytime you see a marriage where the husband is not doing this, his prayers are hindered. That means if he goes to work, say as a physician like Dave does, he's cut off on some level from insight that the Holy Spirit could give him because his prayers are hindered. Now, would you like to go see that doctor? I wouldn't want to see him, no. I want to see a doctor that's dwelling with his wife according to knowledge, has got an open channel with the Holy Spirit, and is hearing what God is saying. I'm checking in right now. Well, it's true of all of us. You know, Ryan was, you, you know, building to building. Now, now, you remember in the seminar we talked about the... Um, the building of the tabernacle, qualifying people to build the tabernacle. And we showed you the C4 principle there. Remember what the, the character aspect of it? What was it? They were filled with the Holy Spirit. Remember that? Yeah. One of the first places in Scripture it says someone's filled with the Holy Spirit is a construction worker. Yeah. Now, my family business was construction. And I, I never saw my dad make it a criteria to hire anybody that they had to be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
Now, I don't think my dad understood that. Now, as I look at scripture, I say, wow, that's a pretty high standard. Maybe, maybe that's just a, an exceptional thing. Now, you start looking around at other texts of scripture where you see C4 like Acts 6, and you'll see, well, similar things. You see people doing food distribution who are full of the Holy Spirit. So, wow. Or people who are musicians full of the Holy Spirit. People who are doing legal work who are full of the Holy Spirit. People who are leading full of the Holy Spirit. You see, that's the way the workplace is supposed to function. But we have so, so accommodated the culture, so settled for a postmodern brand of work that's mediocre and poor that what happens is we don't really produce excellence anymore. It's very hard to produce excellence. Because we don't know how to do business biblically. Because we, we're not trained to do it, and therefore we're not training our children to do it. So it starts in the home. In fact, when you look at the qualifications for elders, we're, we're, what's the most significant qualification for a man to be an elder? It's how they wield their home. Now, one of the things I've noticed in working with elder teams in various places is they're frequently very dysfunctional elder teams. And I've asked myself, why are these elder teams so dysfunctional? And what I generally find when I dig into it is the elders have been selected by non-biblical criteria. They haven't been selected based on biblical criteria. And usually a person gets asked to be an elder if they have money. Because it's presumed if you have money, then, well, you're obviously successful, so you need to, you're need you a good leader. And may I suggest to you that, that unless that success is translated into the home with a, effectively running their home and managing their home, that business success is a, is a head fake. It's not reality. You know what a head fake is? It's when you give that like you're going to go left and you go right. It makes you think that they are something or not. And so what happens when you have those dysfunctional church leaders is you have a dysfunctional church. Well, that comes from, again, not recognizes the importance of marriage. So what I've, as I've studied this over the years, I've gotten to the point where now I don't want to do business with anybody that doesn't have a healthy marriage. If you don't have a healthy marriage, then your prayers are hindered and you're just working in the natural and it's going to be marginally effective at best. I want to find somebody that can really do whatever it is I need done well. I need people who are walking in the power of the Spirit, who are praying and hearing the voice of God and following His lead. That, and that will be reflected in a healthy marriage. i give you a different view of marriage. Your marriage and the way you help your children get to the right marriage is you have the right marriage. It starts with you. Number four. He must teach them an occupation by means of which they can become useful to humanity and thereby earn their living. Well, let me just suggest what he doesn't understand is the SLA message. Because it's all about money to him. SLA is not about money. It's about alignment. It's about obedience. It's about doing the will of God according to the ways of God. It's about playing your role in the meta narrative. Remember Ephesians 2.10. We've talked about that verse many times. You know, for you are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, 
This is referring to your workplace activities, okay, which God has prepared in advance for you to do, which means there's a plan. If it's prepared in advance, there's a meta narrative. There's a story that God is playing out that involves Christ. He's created you to play a part in his story. And your job now, having been saved by grace through faith in Christ, not by works, remember Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you are saved through faith, and that not my works it is the gift of God, not by works, lest any man should boast. Remember that? So works doesn't save you, but works reveals whether or not you're saved. A very subtle distinction that's critical in Christianity. How you live reveals a reality of whether you've been regenerated, but how you live doesn't regenerate you. The Holy Spirit regenerates you. Your faith is an evidence that you've been regenerated. Your faith is not a work. And so now the reason you've been saved is so you can play your role in the meta narrative, do what God created you to do. So we have specific destiny, personal destiny for each person. So if you want to teach your children how to find their occupation, find their life purpose, find their destiny, what do you do? You find it. You know, I frequently I have people will ask me, well, you know, I'd like to send my son to the SLA seminar. I said, that's fine, but you come with him. Now, why did I say that to him? Because I know if you don't come with him, you're not going to know the message. You're probably sending him because somebody told you, hey, you want your, your child to find out what God wants him to do? Send him to that seminar. Well, I'm not interested in a single son being there or a daughter that is not, does not have, a, have parents with him. I want the parents there. And so I will do whatever I can to try to get both parents there to get them to hear the message. Because until they walk it out, it, the child is going to have a very difficult time to walk it out. So you must teach them the right way by modeling for them. Teach them not only the truth, but show them how to live out the reality of what they're called to do. And finally, he must teach them to swim. Well, so let me just offer you some thoughts on what that might mean. I think it might refer to overcoming trials, pain, and adversity to run your race. So I would appeal to Hebrews chapter 12, for example. Verses 1 and 2 is a good example of this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, remember Hebrews chapter 12 is looking back to Hebrews chapter 11, which is the story of faith. Since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. In the seminar, we refer to this as the blocks. The things that stand in the way of you doing what you're called to do. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Now he's using here an athletic metaphor that was common in that day. They had Olympic games. And when you ran in a race, the race was marked out for you. You didn't get to define the racetrack. Someone else did. Your job was to run in the lane. That was marked out for you. 
fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer or the author and perfecter of faith. You have to run your race in faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, for Jesus to fulfill his destiny, he had to endure pain, scorn, and shame. Now, who wants to sign up for that? Pain, scorn, and shame? Amen. The postmodern culture says, hey, you don't want that. I don't want any of that. Well, guess what? That's the process by which God sanctifies us, removes the blocks from our lives, and releases us to the fullness of our destiny in Christ. So we can do what we've been put here to do. If you want your children to live that way, you have to live that way. You've got to engage in running your race. Your children are going to have a hard time going beyond you. You, in many ways, are their lid. That's not impossible, but you need to know that, th that they are inseparably connected to you. So what, however you think and however you live becomes the lid for what they can do. So if you, want, if you really love them, then you will let nothing stand in the way of you discovering the purpose of God for your life and doing that purpose. Wherever it takes you, however much pain it requires, how much sacrifice it requires, you will do it. You know, Paul said in Romans 12, he told us what, what it meant to really walk in the reality of Jesus Christ, to really be a true Christian. And I'm sure all of you are familiar with that text, but let me just remind you again of that text. It says this, Therefore I urge you, that's a pretty intense word, isn't it? Mm -hmm. I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, that is the mercy of sending Christ to die for our sins, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Offer your bodies. Everything about you, your mind, your will, your emotions, your career, your money, your time, your talent, your treasure, your opportunities, offer everything as a living sacrifice. You know, in the Old Testament, there weren't living sacrifices. Sacrifices were killed. Mm -hmm. We're called to live as a sacrifice, which means there's going to be pain through the process of life that God's going to use to purge us. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Now, sadly, one of the postmodern ideas that we have today is that worship is music. We think if somebody comes in to a meeting of people that profess to be Christians and they participate in the singing that they've worshipped. Well, a lot of those people turn around and walk out the door to, to, to go back to their life of sin, whatever it is. Maybe they're living in adultery. Maybe they're lying, stealing, cheating. Maybe they've they got pornography going on. They've got all kinds of different things going on. But they come in on Sunday and we think that they worship because they sing. Well, this is what worship really is. It's living sacrificially to do the will and ways of God. 
And if you're not living there, it doesn't matter what else you're doing. You're not worshiping. True worship is sacrifice. Okay, just a, a quick uh, summary here, some of the thoughts we have here. <clears throat> Tips for modeling. Live multi-generationally and interdependently as a member of the body of Christ. By the way, if you're tempted to disconnect from your Christian community because you think it's dysfunctional, may I encourage you not to do that? Uh, you don't have the right to disconnect. It doesn't matter how dysfunctional it is. If God's assigned you there, that's where you are. Go there and be salt and light. Pray for the people. Go there and look for your assignments. Go there and look for the Holy Spirit to meet you and to teach you. Stay connected. Teach your children to stay connected. Secondly, live a biblical worldview with clarity and conviction. Get very clear on a, a biblical view of reality, how to live it. Become very good students of postmodern culture so you can recognize it. How many of you know how they teach the federal agents to recognize counterfeit money? Anybody know how they do that? They have you study real money very intricately, very detailed. And so when you come across the counterfeit piece, it's easy because you know what the real looks like. Well... You need to learn a biblical worldview mm. with such clarity and conviction that immediately when some postmodern idea comes across you, come across your path, you recognize it immediately what it is. You can label it what it is, and you can reject it. Or you can say, well, I can understand that if we'll, we'll change it like this. We'll put Christ at the center. We'll filter it through the, a biblical grid, and we'll kick out what doesn't line up with Scripture, and we'll keep what does. So that's living with clarity and conviction. You've got to be a good student of that. You need to learn how to live as godly couples. Now, most of you are married. And it doesn't matter how long you've been married, you're going to spend the rest of your life learning how to do it better. How to grow and mature in Christ as a couple. Find and fulfill your life purpose in the meta-narrative. I encourage you, if you have not gone deeper with the SLA material, Go deeper. This is material is here to help you discover your race. And as you become proficient at running your race, you're modeling for your children how to run their race. And finally, run your race with perseverance. Don't let obstacles stand in the way. If you can be distracted, the enemy will distract you. If you can be deceived, you'll be deceived. If you will believe a lie, you'll be you'll you'll have lies thrown at you. Wherever the enemy can get you, he will get you. So you've got to learn to persevere through the pain, through the suffering, through the trials, through the tribulation, because life is not about pleasant experiences. It's a gift when you can have pleasant experiences. But that's not what life is about. What life is about is obedience to the will and ways of God. It's about being a living sacrifice. It's about truly worshiping God. Not just in through singing. And I think you can do it through singing, but the predicate for singing to being worship is my heart has to be right. My heart's not right. I'm not living correctly. I, I can't worship. 
But when my heart's right and I'm living correctly, then my singing becomes worship. See, that's what we, we've got to get this clear, and we've got to train our children accordingly. So, Lord, may, would you just give us the grace to walk in the reality of what it is to be godly parents, to live out the, the fullness of the potential you've put into us, that we may be your servants, doing your will according to your ways for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.